welcome to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we share the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. In this teaching, Pastor Harris will discuss two more spiritual gifts, two that he categorizes as motivational gifts. One is the gift of servanthood, and the other is the gift of teaching. It really is fascinating to listen to these gifts described. Hopefully you're having a similar experience as I am in learning about your own giftings. Now, one of the many things I've learned digging through dad's work is this, and he reiterates it himself, but he studied many of these topics for over 50 years. This teaching isn't something he whipped up over breakfast. These are teachings that evolved over a 50 year span of time from a brilliant theological mind who studied and questioned and pondered and researched and calculated and then And then he studied again and questioned and pondered and researched and calculated all these details over various iterations. Many times we'll find manuscripts of dads dating back from the 80s or earlier that were hand typed, definitely not by him, but those pages would have dad's handwriting notes where he would iterate the teaching into the next version, having newfound knowledge and insights injected into them each time. This is why it's so important to us that these teachings get shared and passed on. Now, switching topics some. Most of my childhood, I grew up in a parsonage owned by First United Methodist Church. For those who may not know what this is, I'm referring to a home that was owned by the church where the pastor and family would live. Churches in the Methodist denomination and many others still offer this. Now, because the church owns the home, the church is typically responsible for the maintenance and upkeep. Well, it's because of this scenario that I met Carl Bennett, whom I would refer to as Mr. Bennett. I'm sure Mr. Bennett loved having a curious little seven-year-old hovering around all of his projects, and I'm sure I was that kid that really wanted to, quote-unquote, help. Dad mentions Carl as one of his favorite examples of servanthood. Thinking back, I can totally see this now. Carl was well along in his years. I remember he had a full head of white hair, and he always whistled the same tune while he was hard at work. I can still whistle that short little repetitive tune. I remember seeing Mr. Bennett up on the tops of our trees or down under our sinks or in our backyard mixing concrete in the wheelbarrow in the heat of the summer, working as postal digger, fixing bathroom tile, and in his white overalls, painting from time to time. In fact, I remember one summer where we loaded up our five-person family into our two-door Regal and headed out for a family vacation. We drove away from our quaint, creamy, yellow-trimmed house, and to the surprise of my parents, we returned to an updated, smoky, blue-trimmed home. I can only assume Mr. Bennett was responsible for that quick-turn exterior painting project. I don't think anyone at the church ever owned up to that color selection either. I haven't thought of Mr. Bennett in a long time, but I have to agree with Dad that he sure is a great example of a believer who is motivated by the spiritual gift of servanthood, which Dad will describe in detail shortly. Now, as a reminder, be sure to check out gifts.arielministries.com that's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L, to see other resources we're offering with this Spiritual Gifts teaching series, like our coordinating video series and soon-to-come study guides. So let's get into the third installment of the Spiritual Gifts teaching series titled, The Motivational Gifts of Servanthood and Teaching. Last week, we began to examine each one of what we call the motivation gifts. Now, I've tried to share with you that it takes three things to do any job well. Number one, you have to be motivated to do it. Secondly, you have to be properly equipped to do it. And then thirdly, you must see manifestations of success in your efforts. Without that, no job can be done well. 
Now, God understood this. So from the very beginning of the Christian church, he poured out gifts upon the church to, one, motivate people, secondly, to equip people, and thirdly, to demonstrate motivations. Now, the first uh, are manifestations. Now, the first of those gifts, the motivational gifts, are described for us in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Now, let me share this with you. Paul writes this, For by the grace, Greek word charis, given me, I say to every one of you, are you included in that? Of course you are. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have, now listen carefully, now we have different gifts. Now the word there is very clear. It's charismata. We have different gifts, different charismata, according to the charis, grace, given to each of us. Now here's a list of those gifts. If your gift is prophesied, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If then serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, the first of those seven gifts listed was the gift of prophecy. And last week, we looked at the gift of the prophet. We described it in some detail. But today, we move to the second of those gifts, which is the gift of servanthood. So I ask the question today, what are motivated servants? Well, those believers who are motivated to be servants are often persons with the spirit generated desire to serve the needs of God. Now that's foremost. To serve God is foremost in the servant's heart. But motivated servants also desire to meet the practical needs within the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, that drives a servant. They like to serve God in, get this, practical ways. So let's look at servants for a moment. The word translated into English as servant is the Greek noun diakonia, diakonia. Now it's spelled D-I-A-K-O-N-I-A, diakonia, one of the most important words in the New Testament. What it means basically, literally, is this, to wait upon or to serve. Now we see this term used in the book of Acts. Now, as you know, an occasion arose in the early church when strife suddenly erupted. It became very contentious in the church. Now, the source was this. There were two groups of people in the early church. The first group was called the diasporetic. 
Jews, the diasporatic Jews. Now, what does that mean? They were Jews who had come into the Holy Land from the diaspora, that is, those Jews who were spread abroad throughout the Greek world. Those were diasporatic Jews. Uh, they were a distinct minority in the church. There weren't very many of them, but we know some of the most famous ones. You have the Apostle Paul, you have Barnabas, you have Stephen. I mean, there are some very famous Greek Jews in the, uh, in the early church. Then there were what I often call the Palestinian Jews. That's Jews that were born and raised in Eric's Israel, in the physical land of Israel. People like Peter, James, John, most of the disciples were what we would call Palestinian Jews. They were the distinct majority in the church. Now, the minority Greek believers had reached the place at a given time where they felt abused by the majority Hebrew believers when it came to the distribution of food because everybody had shared everything in common. They had brought everything they owned into a general fund and food was purchased but the diasporatic Jews felt like they were being left out. And especially they were concerned about their widows. They felt that the Greek widows, the diasporatic widows, were being ignored in the distribution. They weren't getting what they considered to be their fair share. So what do the apostles do? It's very interesting. They assembled the entire body together. And they informed the body that they would not take time away from the study of the Word of God or for, from prayer to be able to handle these thorny situations that continued to pop up. So what they proposed to do is found in Acts 6.3, and it reads as follows. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you, now get this, seven men of good reputation. Make sure... The reputation is right. But then here's the key. Full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, pick Spirit-filled men. Not only men of good reputation, but men who are filled with the Spirit and also wisdom. Make sure they're wise. They understand how to deal in this situation. Now, what do they do with these men? Whom we may appoint over this business. We want to appoint seven men to be sure that this food situation is dealt with correctly. We want seven servants. Now, the, the solution to this is clear, right? I mean, I think you can see it. The apostles searched out men having the motivational gift of servanthood. There we go. Now, they did this because of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and because they did understand charismata, they did understand the spiritual gifts, and they understood the necessity of the motivation gifts. Now, I have found that most believers have been given the gift of servant, that have been given the gift of servanthood, have this characteristic. They are highly motivated to engage in physical type labor, but not necessarily spiritual type work. For example, they'll not be found witnessing in the way that prophets and evangelists do. That's not going to happen. Instead, they'll be found working with their hands. They're doing physical things. Now, our 
over 50 years, I've been researching the spiritual gifts. And I've often found that those with a servant's gifting in the church will always have great compassion for those who cannot help themselves. Their hearts just go out to those kind of people. Now, one of my favorite examples of servanthood could be seen in a man whose name was Carl Bennett. When I became the senior pastor of First United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City, Carl was 85 years old. Now, one day after a sudden rainstorm, my wife and I discovered that the parsonage had a leak in the roof. Water was pouring in to our living room and into our kitchen. Now, the roof wasn't easy to repair for one reason. It was a shake shingle roof. And so the next night we had a trustee meeting after that rain had come. And so I went to pre present this problem to the trustees. Well, it just so happened that Carl Bennett was one of the trustees of the church. And the next day when I returned home from work, there was Carl on my roof repairing that leak. He's 85 years old. Wow. Well, I remember what happened. This was in July. It was 104 degrees in the shade on that particular day. And here is this 85-year-old man up on my roof fixing the roof. I jumped out of my car and I yelled at him. I said, Carl, you come down from there right now. He looked at me and he said, Pastor, why should I do that? Well, I responded by saying, Carl, you can have a heat stroke up there and fall off that roof. And if you did, listen to me, I would never forgive myself. Beloved, I will never forget his response. I want you to listen carefully to what he said to me. He said, if that should happen, Pastor, I would die doing what God has gifted me to do. Now, this is just one example of his service. Let me share another with you. One morning, I step out of my office at the church, my study. I'm standing on the stairs and I look down and there's a humongous hole in the floor. Well, our sanctuary was one that slanted from back to front, high in the back, very low in the front. And this hole has been cut out. And coming out of that hole is a rope. And I'm looking at this and saying, what in the world is going on here? So I go to the hole. I get down on my knees. I look underneath the floor. And way back at the back of the church, I see a flashlight. A flashlight. And I can see it. And I'm, I yell, who's there? And it's this 85-year-old man, Carl Bennett. I said, what are you doing back there, Carl? He said, I'm fixing the sound system. And he said, I left you a rope. If you yell at me and I don't answer back, just pull my body out. Well, I knew there was no sense arguing with him. He was doing what he was gifted to do. It, this motivated him to serve God. And what was the motivation? Being able to serve the body of Christ. Now, I want to share what I believe to be the major characteristic of the vast majority of persons with a servant's gifting. In the first place, 
they always enjoy manual, manual projects. That's the first thing. They enjoy manual projects. Second, they almost always volunteer when challenged to do so. Two, three, they listen well to the concerns of other people. Now, in the fourth place, what I found about servants is this, they are not critical of other people. I don't know what it is about them, but this is the thing that I have noticed most. And fifthly, servants just have difficulty saying no when asked to do anything. They're going to be the ones who pitch in to do it. And then sixthly, they seldom accept positions of leadership, but tend to follow the leadership of others. They are not leader-driven people. But now, one of the things that I find interesting is that, and I consider it to be critical, there is a person in the New Testament who really demonstrates what a servant is all about. And that is Martha. Remember, she's the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Mary. Now, let me share to you from, with you from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Here's how it reads. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. What do we got here? We've got Martha, who is a servant. We have her sister Mary, who's an exhorter. Now these two people demonstrate the difference that we have in spiritual gifts. Now the Lord answered and said this, Martha, now you, got, you just got to look at me carefully. Martha, can you see Jesus wagging his head? Martha, Martha, he repeats it. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, that's the danger, beloved. That is the major danger with the gift of servanthood, is that you look at other people who are not serving the church, and you can get a little bum-fuzzled by this. Why should I be exercising this gift when nobody else would. It's because all of our gifts are different. Even amongst our brothers and sisters in our own family. I'll tell you what, I've got three godly kids and I don't think a single one of them has the same gift. As a matter of fact, they're, they're radically different from one another. Now, as a pastor, here's what I found. I talked to you last time, last Thursday, about the gift of prophecy. One of those vocal gifts where people spew their, you know. But listen, here's the thing about prophets. You need 99 servants for every prophet in the church. It'll take 99 servants to clean up the mess that one prophet can make. You see, the servants are the doers. Are you with me? The servants are the doers in the church. They're the ones that get the job done. 
I hope if you have this gift, you don't think of it only in terms of what you don't have, but you should realize that God gifted you to be in service to Him meeting practical needs. Hang on to that. Now, the next motivational gift is the gift of teaching. So, what are motivated teachers? Well, motivated teachers are those in the church who are blessed with the God-given capacity to explain and to clarify the principles of the Word of God and the doctrines of the Christian faith. That is a teacher. Now, the English word teacher translates the Greek noun didasko, D-I-D-A-S-K-O, didasko, which means to communicate knowledge. The literal meaning, to communicate knowledge. That's what teachers do. Now, naturally, teaching then is a verbal gift, much like prophecy. You can't teach without talking. It just doesn't happen. Now, the major characteristic of teachers is this. By nature, by nature, they tend to be tireless researchers. Now, maybe I should repeat that again. They tend to be tireless researchers. I have found that most motivated teachers thrive when they're allowed to offer oral explanations of what some would consider to be deep spiritual truths. The gift of the teacher is to be able to simplify so that people understand. They can take, a gifted teacher can take the most complicated thing and make it understandable to people. Now, I've told you that in all of your Christian lives, you're going to have a dominant motivational gift. One of those is going to die. Mine, my dominant gift is prophecy. But my subdominant gift is teaching. And how many of you have said to me over the years, Pastor, you seem to be able to make everything so simple. That is a part of that subdominant gift that God uses. But then God also uses that subdominant gift in my ministry gift, which is the ministry gift of teaching. So, who is a motivated teacher in the Bible? Well, I am glad to tell you that one of the most motivated teachers in the entire New Testament era was the Apostle Paul. His skills were absolutely amazing. We can learn much about teaching from the life of the Apostle Paul. Remember now, he learned, he learned at the feet of that great rabbi whose name was Gamaliel. I mean, he himself had been taught by the master teacher, but that's not all. Remember that he was dispatched by the Holy Spirit to the desert in Arabia to be personally taught by that master teacher, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul says he learned his theology at the feet of Jesus. Wow. Now, just as any teacher gifted by God, Paul followed the Spirit's leading in his own teaching. In fact, during his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul set the pattern for how to successfully interact with people in a wide variety of teaching situations. Now consider the following teaching techniques 
utilized by the Apostle Paul in his ministry, as they're detailed for us and outlined for us in the book of Acts. For one thing, Paul took the time to know his audiences wherever he went. That was his key. He made sure he understood to whom his teaching was going. And then what he would do is he would adjust his approach to that audience. Now, the content of his teaching depended upon whether he was teaching Jews or Gentiles. For example, when Paul and Barnabas arrived in the, what we call Turkey today, the Turkish city of Antioch of Pisidia, Paul presented himself at the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is what he always did. Now, in that congregation, there were both Jews and God-fearers. Now, who are God-fearers? They were Gentiles that attended Jewish synagogues. They had not yet been incorporated into the Jewish faith, but they would come to hear the prayers and the Torah readings. Now, the apostle recognized that these Gentile people were had some familiarity with the Torah, even if they weren't terribly, terribly knowledgeable. So that morning, looking out and seeing the men of Israel sitting along one wall, looking in the back behind a screen, he sees these men, of his, these uh, uh, God-fearers, and so he presented a teaching to them. Now, where does he begin? He begins with a history, because he's dealing with Gentiles, he deals with a history of the relationship between Almighty God and the people of Israel. This included explaining the Exodus, the period of the Judges, and the period of the Kings. In other words, he shared with these God-fearers the basic background of what he was now about to say to those Jewish men along the walls. Now, all of these prophecies, as we know, as Paul began to speak, applied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ because all of the prophecies are about him. And Paul was able to see that and he was able to bring it out and explain it in a way that people could understand. Now, the overall reaction to Paul's teaching among the Jews and God-fearers was positive. It really was. Now, remember, this is what happened in Antioch of Pisidia. However, when Paul was in Athens, Greece, he taught the Epicureans and the Stoics, men who were totally paganized Gentiles. They weren't God-fearers. And what Paul did to be able to bring them in to his web was to use the Greek philosophers as his teaching tool. Now, in this sense, it's kind of amazing to me, like any motivated teacher, he was loaded with information that proved him to be all things to all men. Now, let me share something with you. At least 10 times in the past 40 years, I've been able to visit the great city of Athens, Greece. And on at least eight of those occasions, I've had the honor of leading many of my friends to the biblical sites found there. It's an amazing place to go. I love the Roman Agora, the classical Agora of old Athens, because it was in these two places that the Apostle Paul saw altars that were dedicated to what he referred to as being 
unknown gods. In other words, they were pedestals for idols, but most of the idols had their names carved beneath them. But here you had these idols, but they were to unknown gods. They, there, was no, there was no inscription on them. And it is here that the first converts to Christ came under the apostles' guidance. But you know, as much as I love the Roman and the Greek agoras, my favorite spot in all of Athens is Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, as it's called. This is a huge, I'm telling you, huge outcropping of granite standing at the foot of the Acropolis. Now, every time I've taken a group to Greece, we ascend the Areopagus, and I teach the group from the top of this granite hill. So you may be asking yourself, what is, about, is it about this particular outcropping of granite that makes it so special to you? Well, I have an answer to that question. This place is special to me because of the fact that I happen to be Paul Jr. So where my father in the faith taught, I love to teach. And I love to teach there because my mentor once presented the gospel from the very top of that same granite hill. Now the question is this, to whom did he teach that day? Well, the book of Acts makes it clear, crystal clear. You see, in the time of Paul, a Greek council met atop this hill. What was their task? They're called the Areopagus, and their task was to settle local disputes. People from Athens was a democracy. People would come in, and they would make their presentations known, what their problems were, and the Areopagus, the men of the Areopagus, were responsible for making judgments. Now, these council members were either well-known philosophers, known for their great intellectual abilities, or they were local political leaders. Now, each day, people with disputes came to this hill, climbed the hill, and made their request known. Now, in addition, large groups of curious people would come to the Areopagus to hear the Areopagus discuss things. Oh, and how they loved to discuss things. They talked about things like politics, religion, and other items of interest. Now, the Athenians could hear people from all over the world presenting their unique religious preferences, and they would debate them. And that's what Paul did at Mars Hill. He goes to the top of the hill and he begins to present. But what does he do? Does he force them out of what they understand to teach them something they've never heard before? No, no. He becomes all things to all men. He comes in, as any teacher does, knowing who his audience is, and picks things to talk about that they can associate with. That makes sense? Of course it does. Now, the Epicureans, there were two groups of philosophers there, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they dominated that council. But you know what? As Paul taught, they're not going to accept what he says, but they're fascinated by what he says. That, my friends, is a man with the motivational gift of teaching. He's able to teach. Why? Because he can relate to others. And if you are one of those persons, if you love with all of your heart, if you just want to share truth with other people, then you need to go to your pastor 
You need to say, I'm a teacher. And I'd love to have a place to teach. Okay, now let me close with this. These are some of the dominant characteristics of motivated teachers. First, they're more comfortable with groups than one-on-one. Teachers don't do well one-on-one. They need a group. Secondly, they enjoy the discipline attached to detailed study. And this is so much the case, and believe me, I can tell you from my own experience, that they tend to become loners sometimes and spend all of their time in research, as I tend to do. Now, here's another thing, the third point. They enjoy reading books. They especially enjoy reading the Bible and books about the Bible. If they have that motivational gift of teaching, the Bible is going to become central. Fourthly, they'll always tend to question the knowledge of other teachers. Are you hearing me? They always tend to question the knowledge of other teachers. Fifthly, they resist teaching materials that have been prepared by other teachers. I find it's almost impossible for me to teach anything anybody else has written. I have to do my own research. The only way I can teach it is to have internalized it. Sixthly, they need a positive visual and auditory response from those they teach. That's what makes this so difficult for me. I can't see your beautiful faces and I can't look at your eyes and I can't see you react and respond. But nevertheless, I appreciate you being with me. Finally, and let me say this about teachers. Never, ever go to a teacher for counseling. Teachers are horrible counselors. They're almost as bad as me. I can't think of any other, anybody other than a motivated teacher who's worse at counseling than I am. <laughs> so, remember this. If this hurts, don't do it. So, next time, next Thursday, high noon, we're going to talk about another group. These are the exhorters to the church. What a critically important group. These are the people you go to for counseling, as we'll see next time. God bless you all. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Ariel Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit arielministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit arielministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future. 